most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Well, hello again. This is Beck Benning speaking. We have another one of our Orson Welles commentaries for you. Uh, we are joined by Terry Phillips from Manhattan Theater. Hello, Terry. Uh, we're joined by Kathy Fuller Seeley, uh, a resident Jack Benny historian and, and media historian. Good to see you, Kathy. And we have our friend Zach here, who is from, oh no, Review Ballyhoo. Yesteryear Ballyhoo. 23 Skidoo. Yeah, that's it. Height! <laughs> <laughs> and he's going down the center line drive. I don't know how football works, so just have to bear with me here with my lingo. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> so. Yeah, which you've been a guest on, Buck. So uh, you've uh, you've you've got you've had quite a resounding success numbers wise. So, um, and the the video version of that will be coming soon because I figured out a way to make some cool effects. So, oh. um, yeah, um, and I'll be sending that to you very soon, sir. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Winchester seventy three. Yes, Winchester seventy three. Yes, that is correct. Um, but yeah, but we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about Orson. 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 <laughs> let's get to Orson. So uh, let's go to Terry with this episode of Orson. It was an interesting one. He covered uh, a bit of ground on this one and uh, spent some serious time on the GI Bill, which was, I, I, I didn't know that much about it. So I, I love hearing more about it. So Terry, go ahead. What do you, what? Well, let, let's start with a little bit of context. This sure. was uh, first broadcast on October 7th, 1945. It was uh, just five months after the war in Europe ended and a month after Japan surrendered. So the war was still very fresh in people's minds. As I tell people about um, what's happening in Europe right now, as we're speaking, there is a war raging in Europe and has been since uh, February 24th. Russian forces uh, are fighting in Ukraine. And just as was the case during the Second World War, we have no idea how long this is going to last or how it will end. And that was the case when Orson Welles recorded this commentary. His audience was, um, was very aware that the war had ended, but nobody knew what was going to happen next. Uh, the, the Nuremberg trials that um, he refers to uh, were about to begin the, the following month, the, the, uh, the war crimes trials. Uh, he talked about the London conference that happened uh, uh, just the, the summer before this commentary was recorded. And you asked about the GI Bill, Daryl. Um, that was a huge, huge, huge boon for veterans who were given financial aid to reintegrate uh, into uh, civilian society, to get an education, to buy a house. Um, many of the things that carried on for generations after the Second World War. But at the time, it was fresh. People didn't quite know how it was going to shake out, and, and Wells talks about that extensively. Uh, there's one other thing that caught my interest in this commentary. At the end, he, uh, as he often does in these commentaries, he strayed from politics and talked about show business. And he referred to a guy named Mike Romanoff. And uh, our younger listeners might not know that name. Romanoff was a restaurateur. Uh, he was... Uh, he rubbed elbows with celebrities, and there was scandal attached to his name subsequently. But at the time, he was a guy who people in Hollywood wanted to uh, get close to because he would invite them to his 
restaurant and to his parties. And he mentioned a couple of uh, other names uh, in that section, one of which was well, several actually, but one of the names he pronounced, and Kathy, maybe you can help me here. I never heard her name pronounced this way before. There was a famous uh, ice skater who became a celebrity, uh, oh, yeah. Sonia Henney. He called her Sonia Heine. Did you catch that? That, that was... Oh, yeah. And I thought, what is he talking about? So uh, <laughs> it's um, we think of it as, as Henny. I, I think it's a mistake on his part. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and could be a, it could be a matter of how people pronounce things, too, though, because you, you'll yeah. hear that in radio comedy, too. Like yeah. some people just have their way of pronouncing stuff. Yeah. Um, well, it's like a lot I of don't think anybody Ronald. pronounced Woodard as Woodward. Except. <laughs> so there you go. The great actor for five episodes in a row. <laughs> But and then there was, there was Heine also makes for great juvenile jokes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Large, yeah. One might be yeah. on one. Maybe maybe he didn't like her. Yeah, maybe. Mm. Well, well, or maybe she, he was thought a, she had a great. Well, never mind. Yeah. Um, she was and, a little as a Norwegian during World War II. She was a little friendly with uh, you know. I mean, so there was some controversy. Yeah. yeah. About how much of a sort of quizzling she was. Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. That's just rumor, just rumor. But, uh, and then there was a Jack Benny connection in this one. I don't know if you all caught it, but he uh, refers to uh, the uh, the columnist uh, Drew Pearson, who uh, would get whose name would get one of the biggest laughs in uh, radio history on the. So Jack he pronounced Benny. that wrong too, because it's it's Drew Pearson, isn't it? Drew Pearson. Right. And 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 Prince Michael Romanoff was on made an appearance on the Benny Show. I think oh, in right. early that same episode because no no that's a uh, murder at Romanovs. Okay. I I think uh, is, yeah. is another one still with bloopers and so. Uh, and I looked I looked I looked into him for research on a episode that hasn't been recorded yet, but uh, I guess Romanov was a like he like the prince michael romanoff the prince aspect of him apparently he was a big old con artist of some, yeah he of, pretended of to repeat. be related to the uh the the russian uh, monarch family the romanoff family and the, the, the right which job. it wasn't his actual name which when i first heard the romanoffs episode i just took it at face value of he's he's who he says he is it wasn't until like nearly 20 years later that i looked into it and i was like oh okay this is this is bizarre. He has, he has a delicious pasta dish named after him, Noodles Romanoffs. So. Ooh, nice. And name. notice there's no Noodles Orson, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I did not realize this part of the commentary was going to get so much chatting about. <laughs> it was going to be the G.I. Bill we mainly focused on. <laughs> Buck, follow Buck Benny OTR for more recipes. <laughs> Anyway, do you have anything else for us, Terry, on that one? Oh, just one last, one last thing. At the very end, he tells a story, as again, as he often does in these commentaries, and it's a story attributed to his friend and fellow uh, Hollywood celebrity uh, uh, Pat O'Brien, the, the great mm -hmm. actor. And it's a story that one could interpret as being an anti-war story, and maybe, as was the case with a lot of people who were patriotic. They were exhausted by the war. They felt bad about how many casualties there had been, how many people died and, and were wounded and lost everything. But I have trouble believing that someone as politically conservative and self-described patriotic as uh, Pat O'Brien would have deliberately 
told a story meant to be in any way anti-war, certainly not against the United States. So I'm not really sure what was going on there. Wells, of course, was famously anti-war. Um, but again, keep in mind the context, the times. This was right after the end of the Second World War. And so yeah, make, that, make of that what you will. It just it struck me as being a little strange as a story attributed to uh, Pat O'Brien. Okay. Hmm. I yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the, there's a clarification that I wonder is if it's necessary for viewers who might be younger, but the, the term anti-war and how it's utilized in purposes of World War One and World War II versus, say, Vietnam, uh, Iraq, et cetera, um, the anti-war movement at a certain point became detrimental to world affairs, especially when it came to us entering World War II. Um, and uh, by the time you get out of that war, the, the, the terminology of anti-war becomes more in line with Orson's view of thinking when, when the, the, the boomer generation kind of comes in and, and starts protesting the war. Uh, in Vietnam, but we have this period in time where being anti-war, uh, especially amid once we finally entered World War II, is a problem in both uh, in, in hindsight and retrospect. Because you know the anti-war movement was a, initially an isolationist movement in the 30s up into uh, our entry into the war, and I I don't always know how to view Orson's perception on war because he clearly supported the defeat of hitler and yet he there are statements that he makes where he wishes the conflict would never happen so it's 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 a tricky scenario i don't know how to read anything beyond what he's talking about in terms of veterans rights here which is uh, but it's it's fascinating to consider that yes he was anti-war and yet he produced some of the best footage out of South America that unfortunately the, the majority of the movie going public didn't see the, the, the full impact of that. That's a, that's a really good point, Zach. And that's what, again, uh, uh, like Terry says, makes this moment in time so fascinating because everybody is getting whipsawed between we've just won world war two, but, and then, and by, and, you know, and dropping the bomb, but there are war hawks who are now saying we're the only one who's got the bomb. Suddenly Russians, you know, are new enemy in communism and let's have World War III and get it over. Um, so there, you know, all this stuff is going on at the same time. We've just finished a war. But there are people out there saying, let's have another run really quickly because we've got the advantage. And I, I've read that Winston Churchill. I, I've read that Winston Churchill was among those where he's just like, right, on now to Russia. And it's like, whoa, whoa, slow down, Winston, slow yeah. down. <laughs> You've so, got to rebuild Britain. So, <laughs> that's right. So, but but just the complexity. Um, uh oh. Issues that when we write bigger histories, we sweep them under the carpet is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think so too. Um, anyway, uh, anyone have uh, either Kathy or Zach have anything more that they want to point out of any other parts of this? Uh, I don't want this to carry on too, too long because it's an intro to a 15 minute show. But <laughs> it's no, all there, uh, I mean, he brings up Nuremberg pretty early on. Um, and, and if I hadn't been digging into Nuremberg research this year, I probably wouldn't have realized 
how there was a lot of contention surrounding the proceedings of those trials. Um, there's, uh, there's some, there's some thought to the fact that there shouldn't have been a trial at all. These war prisoners should have just been executed on the spot. Um, or even that they shouldn't have even been put on trial and should have been set free. Um, the, the importance of what the Nuremberg trial sets up, it sets out, it sets up a supposed accountability, accountability towards the, uh, the, 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 those who are defeated in war and the, the process in which, Nuremberg underwent was messy because you had basically four different factions coming to the table as prosecutors. You had the U.S., you had Russia, France, and Britain. Uh, and not everybody got a turn at the table that they necessarily wanted. Um, and in fact, some of our some of the the different delegations had different charges that they brought. So like each, like the war crimes charges are not brought by all of the nations. It's brought by one of the nations. Um, and so there is some, there is some friction in terms of how those processes are going. In hindsight, we see the benefit of them, but it's a brand new concept. It's not the same as the Geneva Convention and like the end of, and, and the doctrines at the end of World War I. We're talking about, we're talking about a scenario where you are definitively proving in an open setting the guilt of the Nazi of the Nazi menace. And as a result, you know, not everybody's gonna be happy with the way those things proceed because it is a brand new thing. We're always fearful of change. But um I find it interesting that he's bringing it up in tandem to the GI Bill of Rights, too, because he's alluding to the fact like all this stuff is still not over and our fight isn't over. And the whole G GI right Bill of Rights thing really is it's fun funny to think that just a previous decade earlier you had veterans coming out of world war one fighting for benefits like this like there were marches on washington for this i'm i'm shocked that among all the wars we've had as a country that the gi bill of rights is one of the few ones that actually delivered on promises made by the army and by the government um and so the fact that it needed fierce defending uh, especially within Orson, like it, it just it it really hit home how hard it is to sell benefits to anybody, no matter what the circumstances are, because nobody wants to cave into that cave into that type of demand. And to hear Orson fight for it so vitriolically and passionately is is very inspiring. It's one of the reasons why I love these shows because you are hearing a very eloquent gentleman of the theater who is as well-read as one can, expounding upon the necessity for these programs, these benefits. Like, you know, right now in the UK, they're limiting how many, how, how you can go to school. And in here, we limit it even further. We have different barriers across it. The fact that the GI Bill existed to give soldiers an opportunity to further themselves as a, as a, as a, as a thank you to what they did to help protect the country uh, and to end that war is quite fascinating. But to hear that there was an issue around it was very, very alarming <laughs> because you, you, you have this set view of what World War II was as a kid in a history class in high school or in middle school. Once you get older and you start digging through the weeds, you realize it's about as messy and complicated as what we deal with on a daily basis now. Yeah. And that's it's, it's, it's good to know it now. 
you'd almost wish that there were more comprehensive lectures surrounding this as early on so that people aren't walking around with this machismo attitude about like, yeah, we won World War II. We're the ultimate BAs. But it's like, eh, look, look further. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to say about the GI Bill piece that um, after Korea, my dad, because my dad served in Korea, I, I think I've told the story before of how in World War II, he was drafted, but right at the end, and before uh, he could ship out or anything, the war was basically over, so they sent them home. But then those folks that were trained and had gone to boot camp and everything became the first on the list to go to the next war, which would be Korea. So he was drafted into Korea very quickly. And uh, after Korea, he, through the GI Bill, was able to learn the craft of, of being a, a, build, a home builder, and he had a wonderful life because of that and and we've all benefited from that all of his children and his family and everything so so that was it worked out really well for my family and i'm really thankful for the gi bill existing um and then uh, as far as uh the rest of this goes the the other piece that, that i wanted to ask you guys about or and see if you explain it to me a little better is uh i i loved how orson was explaining uh, the war trials and how they were going to go. And his piece where he was talking about if they found these folks guilty on certain counts, then they would be able to uh, not have to try everybody on all those counts, but simply being part, I assume, simply being a Nazi would be enough to to make you guilty of something. And because he was saying that they can make the whole group guilty instead of uh, just one individual and have to go individual after individual. Um, yeah. Kathy, do you, do you know more about that or, or, or I'll ping it around to Terry or, or Zach if, but go ahead. Not particularly, but it was so interesting, uh, uh, several months ago when we, um, uh, uh talked about the, uh, made for television, uh, a movie, the Playhouse 90 of Judgment at Nuremberg, where they were rehearsing a number of these same issues about were you guilty if you, it, you know, I mean, that you were guilty even if you tried to get by with the excuse of following orders. Right. And so it's so interesting that that was still playing out uh, uh, as they moved from the top officials they had down to um, smaller ones. So. Right. right. That was something that was decided very early on um, in the processes, which was that the, the excuse of I was following orders was non-admissible in court. Like that, you could, you literally could not enter that as an excuse. Well, um, essentially, everybody could have used that excuse except for Hitler, uh, <laughs> going on, yeah. on down and be like, "Oh, he was in charge. I was just following what he said." So yeah. it's a, it's a it's a necessary thing you need to knock out of the proceedings because right. anybody could claim that within a, within a government that lost a war. Um, the 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 thing that's interesting is that he proclaims that if if the process goes like that, then everybody falls under that guilty banner if they were part of the party. The, the the problem is is that after Nuremberg, there was a desire by certain governments to just move on and let this go. And as a result, a lot of Nazis that were then later found in South America or in America, because we did find one here, mm -hmm. uh, were uh, brought to trial and not all, not all of them would get convicted. Right. Um, that there was there was a huge litigation process surrounding Nazi criminals that were then later discovered and recaptured. Um, you know, the uh, <clears throat> Eichmann's trial uh, is a good example, which uh, Maximilian Schnell, who's in Judgment at Nuremberg, 
um, both the Playhouse 90 and the uh, Stanley Kramer production. He's in a movie called The Man in the Glass Booth, which is an adaptation of that trial. Um, it's played a little differently, but the, the basic premise is the same um, of, of, you know, the, this trial of Eichmann. And uh, I find it interesting that he thinks that it's going to be all guilty under the banner. And we have hindsight telling us like, yeah, not every one of these guys was able to get convicted, despite the fact that there was strong evidence of what they did. So it's 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 there's certain naivete and optimism in his voice that we cringe at now because we know it wasn't that simple, but you know, theoretically he's right. If that, if the trial had operated the way it did, then it was supposed to, then yes, anybody who was brought to the table on that charge would have been automatically guilty. Um, right. and, and basically trying to defend individual parts of their actions that are indefensible, but they would have tried. Um, I guess, you know, Orson had a lot more optimism than we give him credit for. He wasn't like a complete nutter pessimist. Like he did yeah. hope for a better world. <laughs> yeah. And it comes across in these in these commentaries. Mm -hmm. We'll give Terry the last word here. Terry, was there anything else about the um, uh, the trial piece or anything that you want to talk about? Um, yeah, the main point that that Wells made is that prior to the Nuremberg trials. Uh, the the uh, people who were punished after a war were were the states, not individuals. And Nuremberg established the principle that individuals were responsible for committing crimes against humanity or war crimes, as they were defined in Nuremberg. And so individuals could be tried and punished. And not only in this setting, by the way, but back in in uh, their home countries, or if they were held captive in another country, they could be prosecuted for their individual behavior. And as Zach said, they couldn't say, well, I was just following orders. They were personally responsible. And that was also codified, by the way, in American uh, military law, where, yes, you're supposed to follow orders, but you're not supposed to follow illegal orders. And that, again, is a very important principle, which um, Wells addresses in this commentary. It is overall one of the most uh, poignant commentaries in the whole run of this uh, series that Orson Welles does. It lays out um, in in really fine detail uh, the things that everybody was talking about in October of 1945. I agree. I, I, I think this is, when I was listening to this again, I, I just thought, oh, this is one of the, you know, he throughout, they're all good, all these commentaries. But every once in a while, once once a month, once every couple months, he hits one like out of the park. And this is one of those out of the park ones that, that yeah. folks, I, I don't even know if our discussion does it justice. You really need to listen to it. Uh, it it's wonderful. It'll be up here next. As, as Before we go, though, I just thought I'd, I'd ask Kathy, because it seems like I've kind of hit everybody else so much. But Kathy, was there anything else you wanted to point out about this one? Or are you good? Well, I, I just briefly, I was really touched by Orson Welles's attention to the returning GIs yes. and what da, 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 da. Where did Kathy go? She... No, she's back. <laughs> oh, okay. You froze well, up for a second. So go ahead and oh. go back over that. 
Okay, you can't just plop them in where they were before. They've learned things, they've experienced things. And history, I mean, uh, I've, I've just been teaching some history of uh, gay and lesbian Americans, which showed coming back from World War II, where um, eight, you know, 18 million young people had been, you know, relatively young people had been together and experienced new things all over the world. Many people didn't want to go back home to, you know, nowhere you know, in Iowa or Kentucky or something like right. that. They didn't want to return to where they'd been before. And so both this experience overseas, what the GIB would help people to be able to go to college or remain in one of the port cities or create a new life for themselves uh, was, was all made possible by this. So um, I just, I think it's lovely that he paid attention to it. So thank yeah. you. So do I. Okay. Thank you so much. And what a great show to have and everything. So enjoy this one. And we'll be back with more Orson next time. Bye, everybody. Orson Welles again, come to call for another Sunday visit. Ladies and gentlemen, our fighting men coming back to us aren't getting the breaks they deserve. The war criminals are getting all the breaks they deserve. And then some. I'll tell you about it in just a minute. Just a word about the sponsor of this program, Lear Incorporated. Lear, that's spelled L-E-A-R, builds fine radios. Although Lear radios have been made since 1930, up to now they've been for a very special use. They've been aircraft radios. Radios made as perfect as radio science could make them. Now, Lear is making home radios as well. And these two are made with the advanced engineering and conscientious craftsmanship that have become typical of Lear manufacture. One of the brand new developments you find in Lear home radios is the Lear wire that remembers. It's a simple way of making lasting recordings of your children's voices, your family songs, the talents of your friends. Or you can take programs right off the air, record them, and hear them again and again thousands and thousands of times. It's done by a spool of hair-sized wire that glides over a magnet and picks up every note, tone, and inflection. The recording can be just a few words or hours long. And anything you don't want to keep can be erased simply by recording something else over it. You've never seen recording like this before. It's something you'll want in your radio. You get it in Lear radios. Now Mr. Wells brings you his views and opinions on events as he sees them. His opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. That great and greatly hopeful conception, the United Nations, is in business again. That's the best news of the week. The efficient cooperation behind the war criminal trials starting in Nuremberg is in stark and cheerful contrast to the last conference in London. Four prosecutors, American Supreme Court Justice Jackson, British Chief Prosecutor Shawcross, Russia's Rudjenko, and the French legalist de Montan are building a code that will be binding above and beyond the ties of country. Quietly, carefully, since last June, they've been preparing a momentous 20,000-word indictment presented this week against 24 top Nazi war criminals. In all truth, it's more than an indictment. It's a brave step in the direction of a law-abiding world community. These men have been exploring and mapping a new realm of law, new in that it specifically rules out the defenses accepted in the old so-called international law. From now on, leaders are responsible for all individual actions under them. Being one of the rulers of a state is no defense, nor is acting on orders a defense. And this is important. If an individual or group is found guilty, the whole group can be found guilty through him. Two of the men on trial are Arthur Seisinkart and Ernest Kaltenbrunner. 
Both were SS men of high rank. If they are convicted and the court also finds the Austrian SS guilty, each nation can try the small fry in its own court where the only proof needed would be that of membership in the guilty organization. This will speed up all the trials, but don't expect this first one to go too quickly. Although the court can review evidence before it's submitted so that the defendants can't bring in extraneous material to take up time and becloud the issue and also perhaps prevent embarrassment to some allied leaders who might be connected with the appeasement of the 30s and the encouragement of Germany's plan for aggressive war in the East. If we're ever to have international police force, there must be international law, real law, not a set of conventions. So watch the lawmakers, the lawyers, and the judges in Nuremberg. The cause of peace and all our hopes for a free, abundant world depend on those trials. They may be a cornerstone for world democracy, may make it possible for us to go on being fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth in the same universe with the atomic bomb. Well, things are looking just a little bit better this week for the GI Bill of Rights. GI Bill of Rights. It sounds good, doesn't it? So it's settled everything. Well, it does not. The bill is supposed to provide a discharged veteran with $4,000 for the purchase of a home, a small farm, or a small business. But if a vet can't furnish collateral for the other half or can't provide endorsers satisfactory to the bank, he's just out of luck. You can thank a nice little lobby, the loan company's lobby, for that one. As first proposed, the GI Bill of Rights would have authorized loans directly by the government. But the moneylenders fought for private loans at 6%, and they won a compromise with all the weight in their favor. It's 4% now. It's private loans. It shouldn't be, but it is. Despite the provisions of the Social Security law, some veterans are not getting their jobs back. And for education, more money is needed desperately. The unemployment provision allows for $20 a week, up to 52 weeks any time in two years. But a vet is not qualified for this. If he leaves suitable employment voluntarily, if he's fired for his conduct, or if he fails to accept suitable employment offered by the U.S. Employment Service, or, or, and look out for this one, it's a great, big, juicy, anti-labor joker, if work stoppage is due to labor disputes, unless the veteran is not participating or interested in the dispute. You can see what that adds up to. An awful lot of servicemen are union men. I don't think they'll go for that one. The news from Washington is encouraging. This week, Senator George's Finance Committee has been holding public hearings on the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1945 as passed by the House of Representatives. Amendments, which will probably pass the Senate, answer many general criticisms of the GI Bill of Rights. The educational provisions are liberalized. The subsistence allowance for students has been raised. The new bill will permit loans at reasonable value as determined by the lender's appraisal. Vets will still probably get rooked because prices are inflated and bankers may encourage loans for almost any purpose because there's so much money around. What does it add up to? As it stands now, how does the GI Bill meet the veterans' needs and wants? I'll try to tell you. The war is won. The oceans are filled with ships bringing veterans, victorious warriors, back to America. Transport docks in the East River and soldiers pour down the gangplank. Where are you going, soldier? Home, he says. I'm a plumber. I've got a wife and two kids in Kansas City. I've got a business. Wife's been carrying on. Well, he's okay. As it stands now, the GI Bill is okay for him. Let's try the next man. Where are you going, soldier? Wilkesboro. That's where I come from. I was a coal miner, but don't get me wrong. I don't want my old job back. I'm a mechanic now. A skilled mechanic. No more of the pits for me. I want a better job. I can handle it. 
Sure, sure he can. He's learned a lot of soldiering, and he wants to use what he's learned to make things better for himself and his folks. But here at home, the war industries have trained a lot of skilled mechanics, too. Tremendous lot of them. They've got jobs now. Will room be made for this returning G.I., or is he going to have to go back to the coal pits in order to live? Here comes another veteran. Veteran sounds like an old man, but this one's a little more than a boy. Where are you going, soldier? Me? I'm going back to school. I hope I am. I can't be sure, but I don't know whether I'll be able to afford it. The government's promised me $50 a month while I'm in college, but I'm not sure whether I can make out on that. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm grateful, but I'm doubtful, too. Of course, our young veteran has his doubts. He has his reasons, good reasons. It costs a lot to eat and sleep these days. He'll need a part-time job to swing it, and there are boys and girls just leaving high school for universities who'll need a job. Unless we're mobilized for peace, a lot of these kids and a lot of veterans of the same age are going to be competing for the same jobs. That question's tough. We're going to have to answer it pretty soon. And look, here comes another fellow. We're going to have to think about him, too. Where are you going, soldier? You're asking me. As if I knew you were asking me. What do you think I've been asking myself these last two years in Africa and then in Italy and then in France and in Germany? I don't know where I'm going. So I, I tell you, I just don't know. We ask him if he didn't make some sort of plan. Listen, he says, when you get as close to as many bullets as I did, you think of tomorrow in a different sort of way, like there isn't any tomorrow. He'll need help, too. He'll need lots of help. He shouldn't have to get it by selling apples on street corners. Here comes another down the gangplank back home after the war, and another, and another. Where are you going, soldier? We're going to ask that question a million times. Ten million times. And we'll get ten million answers. In Army and Navy camps all over the country where I've had the privilege of entertaining servicemen and women, they've shot questions at me, questions that hit dead center. Those men and women aren't asking each other, where are you going? They're asking us, where we'll be, now that they're coming back. And the G.I. Bill, it turns out, just isn't good enough as an answer. It's only a stopgap. Our best laws only partially cover conditions as we see them now. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a big job ahead of us. Twelve million men are marching home. Let's not ask, where are you going, soldier? Let's be ready for them. So all we need to say to them is just, hello. Just hello. And if a soldier wants anything more from us by way of conversation... Let's be able to say, look at the map, brother. From New York State to the state of Washington, from the mountains of California to the Everglades, this is your land. And more than ever, it's the land of opportunity. Take the map home and study it. Pick the road you want to travel, and brother, here's your ticket and a fare to see you through. All the way. Well, I have a story for you I'd like to tell in just a minute before saying goodbye. But first... An important announcement. For just a moment, let me tell you a little more about Lear radios. For more than 15 years, only aviators got them. But now you can have one for your home. And like Lear aircraft radios, Lear home radios are made with unusual care, craftsmanship, and keen appreciation of what lies ahead. For example, you'll find in the beautiful Lear console sets an entirely new contribution to your convenience in adjusting the programs to your liking. You'll find some with television, some with high-fidelity FM, with world-girdling shortwave. 
And some will have the Lear wire recorder I told you about before and that you've read about in the ads. With all their new features, Lear radios are right along in price with sets that offer far less. At the top of the line, there's a handsome console with television, the wire recorder, and the finest of everything. It sells for about $500. And a neat, capable table model sells at the $19.95 level. Well, before the holidays, you'll be able to go to your Lear dealer and hear these Lear radios yourself. Then you'll see exactly how really fine they are. We know you're going to agree that you get the most value for your investment in the radio with the nameplate L-E-A-R, the Lear radio. And now, a few words about next week. Well, the war is really over in Hollywood, not the labor war. That isn't over by a long shot. I mean the social dim-out, the Saturday night sobriety that marked the years of that shooting war, which was so very, very, very far away from Hollywood and Vine. Mike Romanoff tells me he's giving a masked ball where all the guests will be required to come in costume of their ancestors, which for a Hollywood party seems a pretty daring idea. And last night, Elsa Maxwell, without reference to a single worthy cause beyond the pleasant purpose of hospitality, threw a shindig of old-time lavishness in Mike's saloon. The chief event was a cooking contest, and among those entered were Clark Gable, Joe Cotton, Sonia Heine, Van Johnson, and Claudette Colbert. And on the word go, they all started cooking on little stoves provided for the game. And on the word stop, the results were handed over to the judges, Jack Warner, Daryl Zanuck, L.B. Mayer, and David Selznick. I don't know what the judges had to say about those results, but you can take my word for it, that nothing ever tasted or smelt so awful since the world began. I don't know who won, but I can report that before entering the contest, Joan Fontaine, who's been having one of the more serious disagreements with her producer, made the following official statement. I'll cook it if David Selznick will eat it. We left early, not because Elsa's journalistic career has in any way reduced her talents as a party thrower, but because I rather hoped to get to the strike meeting, a rival event last night. We didn't make it, but I'll tell you about that strike next week. Would like to tell you a story. Pat O'Brien told me this one. Seems he was taking his son back to military school after a weekend at home. On the way, they passed that big veteran's hospital out at Sawtell and the miles and miles of crosses in the soldier's cemetery. Crosses look like they're standing at attention. Rest in peace, the saying goes, but somehow you can't believe that in those blank battalions, the order will ever be heard at ease. They were burying another hero that Monday morning, and as Pat and his little boy drove by, they heard the volley being fired over the grave. Were all those soldiers? Pat's little son wanted to know, looking out over the standardized infinity of tombstones. Pat said, yes, they were all soldiers the men buried there. Were they once little boys like me? Yes, they were little boys, just like you. Pat's little son thought that one over for a minute. Then they weren't born soldiers, he asked, and Pat said no, and they drove on for a while in silence. They all died for their country? Yes. They weren't very old, were they? No, they weren't. My, there were a lot of them had to die. You know what, Daddy? said Pat's little son. I think God was just wasting his time. Well, next week I'll have another story for you, a ghost story if you don't mind. Till then, my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio, and I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company. 10.30 at KECA, Los Angeles. Bye.